For several reasons that are unimportant at the moment, I wanted to take a short break from our Judges series. It's one of the only times I've ever done this in the middle of a series, to hear from Jesus in Mark's gospel, to reorient our lives around his definition of greatness and success. This is a sermon for our aspirations. Since the kids are in here with us, it's the sermon that features a kid right in the middle of it. I think we all have a desire to be great, to be significant, to be successful in some way. Now, even if you think, you know what, I really don't have a desire to be great or successful, I'm pretty happy just where I am. I think at least you would say you have a fascination with greatness. Our culture is collectively obsessed with this idea of greatness. Who is the greatest actor or actress of all time? What is the greatest film of all time? Who's the greatest author in the English language of all time? What's the greatest work of literature, American literature, British literature, etc.? As you all know, I'm a big sports fan. So the GOAT debates, greatest of all time, they're endless. Football has sort of coalesced on Tom Brady, baseball's arguing about math, but the basketball GOAT debate is never ending. Two particular names surface over and over again, LeBron James and Michael Jordan. It's like we can't, as a people, just accept that someone is really good at something, that they're excellent at it. We must argue and argue and argue over who is the greatest, who is the very best. Apparently, these goat debates, these greatest of all time arguments are nothing new. We will see this morning that even as Jesus is teaching his disciples about his impending death and resurrection, they are arguing about who is the greatest among them. Two important things happen in our text that will provide the shape of this sermon if you're taking notes. First, Jesus reveals his mission. Jesus reveals his mission. The second thing we'll see is that Jesus redefines greatness. Jesus reveals his mission and redefines greatness, and in so doing, he teaches foundational truths about discipleship, about who he is and who he calls us to be. We will see together that Jesus both defines and embodies true greatness. He, the uniquely great Son of Man, calls us to live in a uniquely great way. But his definition of greatness is not about status or success, but about loving service to the last, the lost, and the least. I pray this morning that God would cut through the noise of our culture to redefine our understanding of greatness, calibrating our hearts to the kingdom of God where greatness is not found in status or success, but in loving service to the world around us. Look with me in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. 
And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Three times in Mark's gospel, the death of Jesus is foretold. Chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. In this second instance, Jesus is passing through Galilee, keeping a low profile, choosing in this ministry moment to invest in his disciples over engaging with the masses. Oh, and those disciples need some help. Their faith is just, how we say, not quite there yet. Consider what happened in the story before this one, back in verse 18. Don't have to flip there, I'll just summarize. A man approaches the disciples, asking them to heal his son who's possessed by a demon, and they could not do it. So they go to G- he goes to Jesus. Jesus doesn't respond. Well, of course, they couldn't do it. They're not Jesus. They're not the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who does these sorts of things. No, Jesus doesn't respond that way. He responds in verse 19 with frustration. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. After Jesus heals the kid, saving his life, the disciples, what'd you do? How did you do that? Jesus speaks to faith. Verse 29, this kind of sickness cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Their problem is their faith. Jesus is not scared off by their little faith, just like, thankfully, he's not scared off by ours. He will continue teaching and investing in them. And for a second time, right here, he's letting them in on his mission. The reason he has come to earth. Verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. There's a tragic paradox here. The son of man given into the hands of men. The son of man will be killed by man. But he will be no passive victim for this is the plan of God. This is the very purpose for the son of man's coming. The one who gives himself for others will die in their hands but his dying is the point. His dying will bring life. Oh Jesus is only passing through Capernaum. He's only passing through Galilee, the place where he once walked, for on to Golgotha he goes. And even in these notes of melancholy, Jesus just passing through a place that was once his home, you can hear the whisper of resurrection. After three days he will rise. How do the disciples respond to this teaching that the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of man and that the Son of Man will be killed by man, that the ones for whom he has come will be the ones who kill him? How do they respond to this confusing teaching? They are confounded. They don't understand. And they're too afraid to ask. With the table set, look where Jesus takes his teaching, perhaps right to the root of their misunderstanding. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? 
Hey, on that trip when we were taken, you guys were in the back of the Prius, and you were just arguing and getting louder and louder and yelling at each other and up in each other's face. Like, what was it you guys were talking about there in the back of the car? The disciples respond, fascinatingly, if we were doing a study of Mark, like his enemies respond when they're just dumbfounded. They respond with silence. Oh, you know that kind of silence. It's a we are busted silence. It's a we've been caught doing something we shouldn't have been doing sort of silence. Not that anyone in this room would ever talk about anyone else, but hypothetically speaking, if you would, you're talking to one friend about another friend, and then that friend comes up and they're like, what are you guys talking about? And it's just like, no, no, they're busted. Guilty silence clouds the moments. They don't want to share the content of their argument. They don't want to tell Jesus what it is they've been talking about, what they've been arguing about. And I cannot help but wonder if they spent enough time with Jesus to intuitively know that the conversation they're having is not the kind of conversation Jesus would be having. Like they were there for the Sermon on the Mount. They heard those words, you know, blessed are the meek, the last or first, etc., not only that, but they know how Jesus is different from all the other rabbis. For instance, in a world where rabbis choose the most uh, prized students, Jesus has chosen these ragtag guys. Where most rabbis come in and take the place of honor, Jesus comes in and sits away from the place of honor. Where most rabbis are only seen with holy and righteous people by the world's standards, Jesus is seen with everybody. From tax collectors to prostitutes and all people in between, Jesus is not scared off by them. So they should know intuitively that this Jesus they spent this time with, oh, he, he doesn't spend his days wondering who's the coolest, the brightest, the bravest, the strongest, the richest, and the best. They were with him when he preached. They were with him when he hung out with outcasts. They were with him when he refused the places of honor. They know he is not like the other rabbis. They don't respond to Jesus. What were you guys talking about back there? But their silence speaks volumes. So Jesus sits down. And he calls the 12 to them. Jesus sitting down is, is kind of like a, a pastor uh, assuming the pulpit, right? He is getting into position to provide teaching. That he is sort of assuming this, this space of authority as he sits down and calls his 12 to him. It is time for the great teacher to give a lesson to his followers. He gives a sermon in one sentence. If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. But Jesus is a, is a good teacher. He's an engaging teacher. And he really wants to drive this point home to his disciples of little faith in this ministry Moment. Let's see his object lesson then in verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. 
So unless uh, you know you've just not known me at all, you know that I am a new father. My daughter Ro is seven months old, and no one, even though she looks like me, has ever looked at her and just been visibly repulsed. This sentiment may be shifting in some segments of our culture, but kids are innocent. Kids are fun. People advertise what they have for their kids. Parents make decisions for their kids, around their kids. Kids today are sort of uh, the center uh, in some ways, and in some ways unhelpfully, but kids in some ways are the center of our lives. Children in antiquity, children in the old days, weren't like that. They were not held in high honor or regard. They contributed nothing to the family's survival, but they drained the meager resources they had. Children in the day of the disciples were just little lesser people who did not have much to contribute to a world of adults just trying to survive. And if we don't understand how the disciples would view children, how their prevailing culture would view children, then we would completely miss the point of the object lesson Jesus is making. Jesus has found among them the most insignificant person. Here is Jesus, son of man and son of God, embracing a no-named, snot-faced, do-nothing little kid. Elsewhere in the Bible, children are held up as an example for us. To have the faith of a child, for example, who trusts their father in all things. But in this passage, in this object lesson, Jesus is not teaching us to be like the child. The child is not the example of humility here. Jesus is. The message in this object lesson is not to be like the kid, but to be like Jesus. Who is the greatest among you? The one who does this, Jesus says. The one who welcomes the last and the least. For in welcoming them, you welcome me. And when you welcome me, you sent the one who, you welcome the one who sent me. Oh, Jesus, son of man, servant of all, who conquers by dying, is redefining greatness for all who would follow him. Greatness, friends, is less about people in high places welcoming you and more about you welcoming people in low places. Greatness is not found in social status, vocational success, or any human achievement. Greatness is found by God's standards in loving service to the last, the lost, and the least. Jesus is here teaching a profound truth that the way we treat people in our lives who can do nothing for us reveals something about the way we think about God. This isn't some unbiblical ideology. This is just Jesus' teaching. He's saying, by welcoming this little kid, you welcome me. And when you welcome me, you welcome the one who sent me. You welcome God the Father Almighty. Our response to insignificant, don't miss those air quotes. If you're just listening to the podcast, I did air quotes. The way we respond to insignificant people tells us something of our response to God. 
In Matthew 25, 40, Jesus says, whatever you do for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Uh, brothers and sisters, I think, I'm afraid that like the disciples, we can default to our culture's definition of success. We have, it's the oxygen we breathe. Be strong, smart, powerful, successful, good-looking, etc., etc., etc. And it's seeped into the ministry world. For instance, being sort of in uh, vocational theological ministry. It's tempting for us, for me, to chase degrees, platforms, titles, book deals. Even on normal Sunday mornings. We can strive for excellence in a way that is less about God's glory and more about our own. To have the best music, the best preaching, the best facilities, the best programs, the best stuff. Is it wrong to want excellence in those things? No, in fact, it's right and good to want excellence in those things. But we want to be excellent and right in the way God says to be excellent and right. Here's what I'm saying. We can take our culture's presuppositions about greatness and just try to be great for Jesus. I think in some ways this was the message that a lot of us get sort of growing up in evangelical culture is that, he, you know, the culture says to be great, and so we're going to be great, but we are going to be great for Jesus. We're going to climb the same ladder of success that the culture climbs, but we're doing it for Jesus. When in reality, Jesus is redefining our very understanding of what it means to be great. Jesus switches the paradigm. Greatness doesn't reach up. Greatness reaches down. What if greatness is defined by service to others that flows from a heart of love and a life of worship? If that's true, then greatness, friends, is not out of reach for any of us. Actually, I take that back. Greatness might just be out of reach for us, but it's not too high. It's just too low. We don't achieve it by reaching up. We achieve it by reaching down and out. What if Jesus actually means what he says? I think sometimes we read our Bibles and we're just struck by that question. What if he actually means that in his kingdom, the first are last and the last are first? Several weeks ago, we were singing um, that song, I think it's by uh, Wickham, Phil Wickham, uh, Hymn of Heaven. The only way I ever hear a song is if we sing it at church, frankly. Um, the, the lyrics, you know, on that day, we join the resurrection and stand beside the heroes of the faith with one voice, a thousand generations sing worthy as the lamb who was slain. I was singing that song right over there where I always uh, sit. And I was just thinking about, um, you know, the heroes of the faith that we look up to. So I, I study historical theology and church history, and so there's all these men and women that you read about and you look up to and you see their contributions to the church, and you think, wow, man, I can't wait to, to, to know that person, to see that person. And it's just this powerful image to be standing beside, you know, the, the heroes of, of the faith. Like, oh, there's St. Augustine, oh my gosh, right? And in our own lives, you know, like the saints who have gone before, like aunts and uncles and parents and grandparents, about I see my grandma, yeah, it's just this really um, hopeful feeling when we think about the resurrection. 
But when I was thinking about these church history heroes, these fathers and mothers of the faith, I was reminded that uh, on some level, and I don't want to take this too far, but on some level, they were heroes here. We know their names now. They're in textbooks and history books, and it's evident the ways that they have shaped the Christian story. But I was thinking later about those words. I thought, there's also a whole world of heroes that I've never heard of. There's a whole world of people who were great on this earth, but they weren't great by the world's standards. They were great by God's standards. Their names are not remembered in history books. But Jesus says they are great in the kingdom of God. A couple of years ago, I saw a headline in the New York Times. Here's the headline. Sewer cleaners wanted in Pakistan. Only Christians need apply. Here's the tagline, the sub, subhead. In Pakistan, descendants of lower caste Hindus who converted to Christianity centuries ago still find themselves marginalized, relegated to dirty jobs and grim fates. And in this article, I learned that Christians make up what I expected, about one and a half percent of Pakistan's population. But it is believed that they fill about 80% of the jobs, cleaning, sweeping, dealing with sewage. So 1% of the population is Christian, 80% of the people who do the dirtiest, most reproached, vilest jobs are people who were persecuted for bearing the name of Jesus. I can't help but think that among the heroes of the faith with whom we will one day stand are some Pakistani sewer cleaners who have given their lives to a lowly Jewish carpenter. Blessed are the sewer cleaners for they shall see God. Worship team, you guys can come on up. Jesus challenges his disciples' understanding of the Son of Man's mission. He is going to die. He's going to die at the hands of man. But they don't yet have ears to hear it. They don't have categories to understand it. They're more interested in who is closest to the Son of Man. Who will share his glory? Who will sit to his left and his right? Who is the smartest among them? Who is Jesus' favorite? They're just thinking about themselves. They want to share his glory, but they will soon find that if they will share his glory, they must share his suffering. They will actually end up being great, but the way that they'll be great is not the way that they expect they'll be great. Their lives look nothing like they think they will. Here are my questions for us as we end this sermon. Friends, brothers, sisters, will you let Jesus redefine greatness for you? Will we let Jesus' definition of greatness be the operating aspiration in our life? That greatness is not found in status, success, people thinking we're awesome, cool, smart, etc. 
being accepted by all these people. But greatness is found when we know that we are accepted by God. Our lives are lived from a posture of worship to him. Our hearts are filled with love for him and love for others. And that life and that heart moves us to serve others with our whole lives. Will you let Jesus redefine greatness for you or will you just try and go be great for Jesus? Will you give your life to him in worship and obedience? Will you serve your church in normal, unspectacular ways? If this passage is true, then the greatest thing that's happening this morning is not necessarily what I'm doing, but it's what they're doing up on the second floor. The ones who are embracing little children, loving them, serving them, praying for them, changing diapers, paying attention to them, keeping them from mauling each other. Like that is great. Jesus calls that great. And that is a picture of what we believe to be true about God. Rather than chasing opportunities to be served, the disciples of Jesus chase opportunities to serve others. Will you serve the church in normal, unspectacular ways? And will you serve your family and those around you in normal, boring, unspectacular ways? In your workplace, will you serve your coworkers, the ones you like and the ones Jesus likes? Will you serve them in normal, unspectacular, and boring ways? Will you serve the ones the world has forgotten, even and especially if it's a sacrifice? Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Let's pray. Father, we collectively repent of the ways in which we conceive greatness that exalt ourselves. We collectively repent of the desire to be great by being smarter, having other people think we're all that. Lord, help us think about success in terms of obedience. Help us think about greatness in terms of service. Help us who have been accepted by you extend a welcoming hand to the hurting around us, the lonely around us, the lost around us, the broken around us, the confused around us, and extend to them the hand of fellowship, Lord, with the message that the Son of Man would come into the world seeking not to be served, but to serve. That the Son of Man would come into the world, be delivered in the hands of men, but all of this would be his plan from the beginning. Help us know, Lord, what you're doing in the world. That you have come, you've lived, you've died, you've rose again. And you call all men and women, boys and girls, all over the world to repentance and faith in you. And help us trust you. Help us trust what you've done. Because you alone are great. You alone are worthy. You alone are powerful. And you have made us your own. You have brought us into your family. You have called us to follow you in this life and into the next. And oh, I pray that we would not, like the disciples on that journey, be distracted by ourselves, 
that intramural squabbles would not keep us from a focus on your mission and the people around us. So Lord, give us faith to be great. Remind us that our lives find their value in obedience to you and in service to others. We confess where we've gotten this wrong. And we commit our lives to you and you alone. Amen.